2: Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 275 for September 28th, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about finishing a project with lots of nooks and crannies, using cut nails, and flattening a table base to accept the top. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, SawStop. After more than a decade, SawStop's combination of safety and precision has made them the number one cabinet saw in North America. Use the interactive tools at SawStop.com to build and price your ideal SawStop, and then find a dealer online or near you. Protect yourself today with SawStop. SawStop. Nice. we got to get some echo effects on our voice when we do that. It'll be even <laughs> yeah. better. Uh, we'd also like to thank a couple of people who helped us out with generous donations. James Hobbs, Matthew Applegate. Thank you, uh, both of you guys, for helping us out. Now, if you want to help us out, too, you can. Just go to woodtalkshow.com, look in the side column there for the donation links, and either a one-time or a recurring small donation, however you want to set it up. Or we a recurring big donation. Yeah, we actually, we don't have it set up for big.
1: All right. Like well, those, then, are one pre, time big
2: those are pre-made, so I assume people don't want to send us lots of money. It's just probably a safe assumption. Yeah, but-
1: <laughs> you either can spend it on wood talk, or you can spend it on that
2: you know campaign phone call
1: you're getting four times a day. There from- you go some political party saying contribute to my
2: candidate you exactly. just say no and contribute to Wood Talk vote for Wood Talk, is what I there say you go. Uh, and you know what if you do that we will read your name at the beginning of the show like we did with James and Matthew there and hey while you're at this website go to the giveaway page and sign up to give yourself a, uh, a t-shirt we got a chance to win there every month and it's a nice looking Wood Talk t-shirt and I think you would look beautiful in it so please go there do that and uh, we are we are sort of mat list today I you guess know, we can we're call chortle list today there's just not as much chortle in the show yeah oh. but Matt Matt is is
1: 45 minutes south of me at the Baltimore airport so close, yet so I know. far away it's painful
2: yeah yeah so Matt you know with this new travel schedule we mentioned it last time uh, we may have to go mat list once in a while but uh, we also may have guests on if it, if it becomes too frequent of a thing uh, to kind of fill the gap and the the challenge though is we need to make sure that every guest we have is named Matt and right. this way we don't have to change anything in the show notes.
1: Yeah. And anybody who wants to be on the show first, first of all, your name must be Matt. Yeah. Second of all, you have to submit a chortle audition.
2: Yes, please. At so least three send in your chortle, audios. three different chortles, uh, of varying lengths. We need to make sure it will work for the show. Right. All right. So let's get into what's on the bench. Uh, for me, it's been mostly about figuring out what's going on with this cough. So, you know, I thought I had it figured out, but turns out none of that sinus crap that I did and the steroid I did, none of it worked. Uh, so we're actually now thinking it might be a reflux issue. So uh, all the doctors out there are like, yep, I knew it. I I knew, <laughs> I knew it. it. What an Too idiot. Too barbecue. Too much barbecue. That's it. Uh, eat, eating barbecue an hour before bed just isn't good for you. Who knew? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm still currently trying to fix that. So if I cough a few times during the show, my apologies. I'll try to keep it out of the microphone. Uh, But I did wind up getting back in the shop and getting ready in spite of all the craziness with my family, baby still in uh, the NICU hopefully coming home at the end of this week, but I was able to get into the shop and start the gaming table project. So I got all of my cherry boards and got everything f- like roughly milled at this point and the first stage is to move into the, the big honking legs. So nice. I'm gluing a couple pieces together for full three and a half inch by three and a half inch big sturdy legs on this piece, cutting big tapers on them, some nice mortises. So that's, uh, that's what this week's video is about and now I am cramming to try because I lost all day today doing stupid things that had nothing Thing to do with work, uh, I w- and, and, and I just said stupid, and I'm people are probably going to assume I'm talking about my kid. No, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't involve anything with the baby. It has it has to do with stupid. a, a car dealership. Let's put it that way. That can all be classified as stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta watch what why, I say.
1: Why couldn't she come out well formed and yeah, you know exactly. able to walk and talk and change her own diaper? Yeah. What's her problem?
2: It's all her fault. Uh but yeah. either way, so I'm cramming to get like everything ready for Friday's video, uh, which is always tricky. So uh but that's it for me. So what about you? I um
1: <laughs> I am really far behind on a bunch of stuff. And you know, it's it's good to hear you say this stuff because you do this full time yeah. and you have well, I mean, technically, I, no, I think you have a hard and fast rule five days a week, right? I do right. now.
2: I have like a, a normal, quote unquote, normal work schedule that I like right. myself.
1: So you've got five days a week to do this, and yet still uh, the stupid stuff, yep. you know, errands. And I mean, it's amazing. Well,
2: stuff's go, closed on the weekend, right? You right. know, so there's some things you have to do on Monday.
1: You know, doctor's appointment, run an errand for this or that. And before you know it, six hours have gone by. Days done. And, you know, there, there's a point where you're just like, it's not even worth going in the shop at this point. Yep. So it's just been one thing after another for me this year. And I have had a couple of jack planes sitting on my sharpening bench kind of halfway through restoration. Mm-hmm. And and they're actually already, like, I gave them away to hand tool school members. It's just it's terrible that I haven't gotten them out to them yet. Um, So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just do nothing else. Everything else is to stop. Because the minute I stop to do restoration, which, by the way, I hate restoring tools, (laughs) It's awful. So it's like, you know, I need to work on the project that I'm really enjoying and having fun with and also under a deadline, or I can stop doing that and do something I hate doing. So you can understand why it keeps getting put off. So finally, (laughs) I was just like, this is ridiculous. You know, let's get this done. I'll put them in boxes, ship them out of here and get them done. Fortunately, there was no, like soul problems that had to like lap the soles or anything most of the restoration had done it just came down to the blade and I hit the uh hit the stone starting to lap the back and I spend I don't know about a minute lapping the back and I flip it over and you start to see just how bad it is and <laughs> I'm thinking oh man what son of a bleep put a huge <laughs> back bevel on this thing and then what I thought was dirt on one turns out to be pitting
2: Oh. Um,
1: right near the edge. Oh man. So, you know, I could, I could flatten it, but like in a year that pit is now going to be at the edge and you're going to have a huge divot. So, um, what did I do? I went to Lee Valley ah, nice. and ordered some PMV 11 blades. And I figured, you know what? These planes are so late getting to their people. Yeah. I owe them a brand new blade. Man, That's, that is an upgrade right there. <laughs> it is an upgrade, but you know what, oh, man, it's, it's 50 bucks. For, uh, for these three planes. So, yes, it's 150 bucks. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a lot of money, yeah. considering it's not going to my own shop. But these are people that uh, won these planes by becoming hand tool school members. So the profit is still there for mm-hmm. me. You know, they paid to become members. I owe them this much. So I'm going to send them their blades, uh, yeah. the original blades. But, right. man, it just, I don't know. I probably lost my hand tool craft with a lot
2: of people by saying that. I just hate doing it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that that is crappy work. I mean, some people may be a labor of love, but I don't want to touch it. You know, when I, when I buy antique tools, I am incredibly critical
1: before I plunk down money. I want to make sure that I'm not going to do a bunch of this stuff. So I look very closely at the soles, make sure there's no super, you know, huge amount of lapping that has to be done. Pay very close attention to the blade. And, and I walk away, you know, if it's, If it's going to require a bunch of stuff. I'm fortunate that, you know, the East Coast has lots of antique tools. They're all over the place. So, you know, I can afford to be picky on this. So most of the time, I just don't deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if I do, it's because it's a very uh, unusual uh, molding profile or something like that. For a jack plane, I would have never bought these in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, They were donated, sat on a shelf for a while. Actually, from Steve Taylor. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for this little trouble you gave me. Um, there's, there's it, a future expense he gave you. Right. So to me it is, it is well worth because I know, um, even if I get these blades lapped, um, I know that they're not going to work as well as they should. Mm-hmm. And I usually recommend people go with a blade upgrade and you know, yeah, you could have done it. I could have done it cheaper, but I figured PMV 11, it's an opportunity for me to play with it. When I sharpen these blades, it'll be fun.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think it's like a $10 upgrade. Um, and from what I've understood about the steel, it's well worth the upgrade. So okay. yeah, I cheated and bought new blades and these planes are going to be so souped up and ready to go and I can finally get them out of the shop.
2: There you go. And you feel good about it too. You did a nice thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what happens when you're a hand tool school member.
2: You See? get above and beyond service. That's right. Service six, with a smile and with PMD. 11. <laughs> exactly. Very nice. That sounds good. Alright, let's move into what's new. Got a couple things. These are things that you guys actually shared with us this week. Uh, Dusty wrote in, he says, hey guys, just came across this article at Fine Woodworking. Found it very interesting and heartening that a nation could have such strong feelings for their homegrown designers. However, it raised the question to me of how we approach this in the U.S. and specifically in the woodworking community. For example, we, and rightly so, uh, he says, we revere Charles Brock, but isn't isn't he just cribbing Sam Aloof's designs? Again, we all know he's a stud as a woodworker, but stud—that's just funny to say. Uh, but do we place more value on the craftsmanship than the design in instances like this? So we'll put the link to this article. It's called "Don't Mess with the Maker," and I believe it's a story. I—I I didn't read the whole thing. I'll admit, it's—is it's like, it's, uh... it with China?
1: It's a short one. It's worth checking out because okay. there's a little video at the end that has gratuitous smashing in it, which is always fun. Right. But it's um, the, the Wegner chair, like the iconic Hans Wegner chair. Mm-hmm. Um, it has that kind of round back to it. Very, very Danish mid-modern. Um, this company, this restaurant in Norway, bought 100 of these chairs by a Chinese manufacturer. Okay. Um, they were intercepted by Norwegian Customs. And the company that holds the the copyright, the patent, or the design rights to that Wegner chair Mm -hmm. uh, was approached and said, "Look, these are imports. These are knockoffs of your design." And that company said, "Destroy them." Like. Destroy them. Oh, and by the way, at the buyer's expense. Yeah. So this restaurant tour, I'm if you can't tell, I have really mixed emotions on this because it's a definite, absolute knockoff of the design. And we've seen Chinese manufacturers do this all the time. Constantly. Yeah. But as someone
2: in the comments
1: of find the Find World Working article, which is fun to read in and of itself, because there's always some real
2: When you're talking about mixed emotions, you see right. every one in, in right. those comments. It's definitely worth a read.
1: But there is one person that pointed out the fact that isn't the Wegner design basically just a rip off of a Chinese chair design. And he's right. <laughs> a lot of these designs come out of old, like, uh, uh, like d- medieval designs from China. So yeah, you know, turn about <laughs> is fair play, I suppose. But needless to say, the Norwegian customs officers like went after these chairs with a backhoe and smashed them into hundreds of pieces and charged the restaurateur for the cost of doing that. Wow. So not only did he pay the money for the hundred chairs, he doesn't get his chairs, and he has to pay the backhoe driver to destroy his chairs um, because the, oh, the rightful owner of the design, uh, this Norwegian company, said that's what we want. So I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm all about protecting intellectual property, but I, this is I an don't. extreme, certainly. Yeah, like it's, if you're going to have this come, extreme, if you're going to have I this that,
2: conversation, it's usually about a should we, shouldn't we sort of thing, not. Should we destroy it at this person's expense? Like it's not going to go that far. You know, the
1: restaurant guy, he's probably never even heard of Hans Wegner. You know, should he be blamed for not knowing? I mean, he he probably went to like a restaurant supply catalog and saw this and said, I need a hundred of them. Um, Maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he said, oh, this is great. I love this chair. I could get it cheaper somewhere else. You know, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It's
2: a tough call. I mean, I look at the chair and I would not have known that it was a protected design necessarily right. but if i was a restaurateur and i was you know trying to get a good uh, quality chair that would stand apart in my restaurant i i could see it's a, a definitely a plausible argument that he had no idea what it was that he was he was purchasing in terms yeah. of it, how protected it was i wonder are the i know that obviously they clearly have permission to do this but how strict are their laws on this is there precedent for this sort of thing out there that people should know when you buy your furniture to make sure it is not some sort of protected design. Or is this like the first of its kind? I'd be curious how much history there is with this.
1: Well, I honestly don't think you would see this happen in the U.S. Yeah, Uh, I think, well, first of all, we have way too many lawyers here. So yeah,
2: there'd be a a bunch of people
1: on either side of this coin ready to, to go after this case. Um, Norway, I guess is, is a lot stricter. They consider themselves to be, the um like the fathers of the danish mid modern design mm-hmm. um I say that like they shouldn't be i I think they actually are the fathers of that design, yeah, so they're probably rightfully protective of an an iconic kind of nationalistic style, so maybe maybe there there is no precedent, but just because it was a Wegner who is kind of considered like the icon of danish mid modern maybe they said you know you could go after this guy, but not Wagner. That's yeah, where a, we draw the line. A right? national treasure sort of thing. To yeah. Them. Yeah. It might very well be,
2: but Interesting. you know, I, I really don't know how I feel about this. I could come down on either side of the coin. It's how does it, well, awesome. and I don't know that we want to even get into this too much because you get into the whole copyright furniture design thing. And that's an area where we uh, constantly venture into and find out that we don't know anything Right. Uh, as we will find out in the comments afterwards. So I don't want to say too much about it. Um, but You know, with regard to what he brought up with Charles Brock and Sam Maloof, um, that I think that is something that is constantly uh, tossed around, and you'll find people have different viewpoints on it. And even when I when I built the the sculpted rocker in the guild you better believe that was a thought in my head. And I even sure. wrote an article about this because I got to a point where I was like, something about this doesn't feel right. And, and I wanted to build it and I wanted to make sure that we did it in the guild. Uh, number one, I didn't have the time to actually work out all the dimensions myself. So I wanted to partner with someone and Charles Brock was open to it and it worked out well. So, you know, when we did it ourselves, it was something that I was super concerned about. What are the legalities here? And even if this is a gray area, is this a bad Like sort of are we leaving a bad impression with a lot of people by promoting this, what is basically a Sam aloof knockoff design. But I think there's a, there's a big difference between teaching people how to make something so that they can make one for themselves versus opening a shop down the road. Who's going to compete by selling these to other people. Yeah. I think once you start selling them, uh, it ventures into a different arena. So that's why I felt, I honestly felt that I could sleep at night with what I did. And I, uh, give a percentage of the proceeds to the Malouf foundation. And that makes me feel better. Honestly, no one made yeah. me do it. I just feel like that's what I should do. So, I mean, well, and that, and that's where in this particular
1: story, I really get mixed emotions because it was 100
2: chairs. That's a lot of
1: chairs. You know, um, and if it was, you're right. If it was just like a couple of them, you know, they might have looked the other way. But yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they would. But 100 chairs is a huge deal. And it
2: doesn't. Uh, you know, the thing that sucks is it doesn't even hurt the manufacturer. I mean, obviously, it's probably very difficult to to yeah. go after a Chinese. They still company, got paid, <laughs> uh, but they still got their money. And th- like, there's no change in their situation, and they're actually the ones who are even more. I think are even more deeply at fault. But yeah. this is just run-of-the-mill business out there. Yeah,
1: But, I mean, this whole thing, especially with, like, the the Maloof-Brock thing, is it brings up the whole inspired by. Technically, all you have to do is say, I altered the design a little, and now I've been inspired by Sam Maloof. And, <laughs> yeah. and I know that that Charles Brock did that. I mean, he changed a lot. He changed some angles. He changed the width of it. He changed a bunch of stuff that when you put them side by side, you know, they're very different chairs. But mm-hmm. to maybe to the woodworker... They're very different chairs um, to the average layperson. And again, back to this restaurateur that bought a bunch of Wegner chairs. He probably doesn't even know who Hans Wegner is. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it it's tough. I mean, there's different audiences here. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, and then you go back to the fact that at what point is it OK? You know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of designs out there uh, by Thomas Chippendale. He made a book of mm-hmm. his designs, yep. you know, are we ripping him off? Stick, oh well, no, you know, he's stickly. 300 years old. That's there, okay. Well, exactly.
2: Yeah. There, well, there's a know. lot of stickly stuff out there too. That is just kind exactly. of, it's just what you would call mission style, yeah. you know, but in reality it's a stickly design. I mean, there, there's yeah. a I lot mean, of, these you could things.
1: say Sam Maloof is dead, but the Maloof shop lives on still making that George Nakashima has passed, but his daughter Mira is still making this stuff. Um, you know, Hans Wegner's been dead for at least a couple of decades, I think. I don't actually know when he died. But he he was at his heyday during, like, the Kennedy um, presidency. Okay. So that'll tell you. He's been gone for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the company that now makes them is no familiar relation whatsoever. Yeah. They just happen to own the copyright. Like, Michael Jackson owned, um, what was that? Shoot. Oh, the Beatles kind of thing you're talking about? The Beatles, thank you. Okay. You know, and you couldn't put the Beatles on iTunes because Michael Jackson wouldn't allow it. You know, it's right, just right. like, that was a little weird. Well, here's a company that, you know, really has no ties. They just happened to make that design and bought that design. Um, I, I don't yeah. know.
2: I just wish the Chinese company could have felt some of this pain. You yeah, know, if exactly. It, it just exactly. sucks. that. I mean, it's fine if you want to re- uh, enforce things this way, but the real like villain here walks away with no penalty whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it comes back
1: to that. You know, you hear a lot of people very passionate about Buy American. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that, but I also believe that there are foreign countries that make stuff better than we do. So there are some areas where I'm not all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the closer you can get to the source, um, the yeah. designer, I think the better off will be.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, you know what? Let us know what you guys think. We don't want to like hash out a big argument here, but, uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing to ponder. I don't know that there is any true right answer to this and there's a lot of gray area to it. So, uh, even just there. thinking
1: about it, like you had said, Mark, when you talked about your Maloof thing, I mean, you put a lot of thought into that and you made some a, a concessions, not the word, but you made, you took steps to make yourself feel better about it, which tells me you put some thought into it, yeah, you know, yeah. which is very cool.
2: So, <laughs> So, so the, thought, go, the government should come to my shop and just destroy my chair. Yeah. That would be much. funny. That's okay.
1: Your daughter will do that.
2: <laughs> That's true. It's in the house, so <laughs> it's fair game. All right. So on the on the thought of
1: original work, we got uh, an email from Jesse who said, I just got back from a work assignment in Ireland and had the chance to check out a couple of furniture designer builders there, which I found really interesting because both of these websites do not say furniture makers. They're very clear to say m- I'm sorry, they're very clear to say designer-maker. Hmm. So the whole maker term, even abroad, is just as big. It's on fire. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, one of them, uh, his name is Martin Gallagher, martingallagherfurniture.com. He's a, a young designer just starting out. And then another guy, Joseph Walsh, at josephwalshstudio.com. I love his music. He's been at it for a while. Now, he actually got to meet. Uh, both of these designers, a little bit with uh, Joseph Walsh, bit more time with his PR person. But it's a really interesting contrast. First of all, uh, Martin Gallagher, um, right out of school, out of design school. And you can definitely see that young design school grad. His stuff is awesome. Yeah. But you can see, oh, he took a class on the Cotswold School. He took a class on the Bauhaus style. It's mm-hmm. very, very cool stuff. But then you go to Joseph Walsh, who did not go to any schooling. And his stuff is so off the wall, crazy, insane, mind-blowing. Huh. Um, so it's just kind of interesting, you know. Nice. What does school really do for you? I just read an article earlier this week about, like, one of these famous artists saying, don't go to art school. Yeah. It's, it's a waste of money. Here's a guy who never went to school, and he's got, like, a full-blown shop with people that take uh, – well, Jesse actually said it in his email. Um, build times are measured in months by a staff of a half a dozen or so um just crazy stuff i will put the links to both of these websites
2: um definitely worth checking out um very cool in very different ways i'm looking at the joseph walsh stuff now it's a lot of that like bent material yes. just into like the bending process itself must be insane for the stuff to turn the wood into something that looks more like ribbon than there's a, wood. there's
1: a media page on that website with a couple of videos and there's one particularly uh, vimeo video that's particularly startling because the guy that's like sanding it, finish sanding it, has to like contort himself to crawl inside this piece. Right. You, how know, about, you like like that crawling bed? inside the rib cage of like a T-Rex or something like right.
2: that. Yeah. Do you, you see that it? bed with the overhang? That's just like the canopy is part of the whole structure. It's ridiculous. Insane. Well, that's yeah. the thing with a lot of this stuff is I would just love to see the process. Show me the process. Yeah. I can't even imagine how one
1: like, Goes from paper to actually constructing that.
2: Yeah, I would look at that on paper and go, "Yeah, that's just not possible." Sorry, I, I <laughs> like would, I would want to know what you're smoking. Yeah, you mold that <laughs> you out of mold that out of plastic, maybe uh, out of wood. Not so sure you're going to be able to do it, but yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah, there's some high grade pharmaceuticals involved in that.
2: Design. <laughs> <laughs> Faux show. All right, let's move into our poll of the week. We don't have a new one this week, but we do have the results from last week. And the question was about the effect of kids on your wor- on your uh, woodworking. And uh, let's see, I actually probably got a lot of updates to this today because I just kind of pushed it out this afternoon a little bit heavier anywho we got about 35% said that the effect was great had to really drastically change my shop schedule 21% said 21% said it had some impact 10% said started woodworking after my kids were grown Uh, 6% affected me very little since I'm a hobbyist another 6% said almost had to give up woodworking that's interesting And less than one percent, which was uh, nice to see, uh, said that they had to give up woodworking when they had kids. Hmm. So, uh, and then actually, twenty-one percent said no kids. So, <laughs> no kids out of the running. Um, yeah.
1: Well, ahead, I don't know about game. you, but I actually voted that it greatly changed my life. <laughs> and, and I just have a puppy, but my god, that's been a huge
2: change. It has. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's we we were talking about it earlier on about my schedule. Is I like made it a promise to myself that I would not be working when my son was home unless it was like a particular crunch time and I really needed to, to get something done. Uh, so I really do try to work like an eight to five schedule and I don't work on the weekends. So, uh, yeah, it definitely has changed <laughs> my available time. Uh, like in a business that I, I made by working at least f- anywhere from 50 to 60 hours a week, uh, right. dropping down to a regular work schedule is a little bit tricky. All right, leave it. Let's move into kickback kickback. What we got here. Oh, I got a voicemail kickback from Nick Choi. And uh it's about having a computer in the shop.
0: I'm calling in regards to uh some computer questions that Shannon had in episode what was it? Uh 273. Um, <clears throat> his main concern was uh dust interacting with the computer itself and uh the main solution that I uh that I recommend is uh, using water cooling. Uh, It's not dunking your computer tower in a bucket. Don't do that. Uh, It's using a heat sink uh, on uh, your computer parts, your CPU, your graphics card, even your RAM, and uh, uh, having water flow over the heat sinks and uh, flowing out to a radiator, which is cooled by fans, uh, much like a car would be cooled. these fans and radiators can still interact with dust uh, which can uh, uh, degrade performance uh, with exposure so uh, one possible solution is to route the water uh, to the radiators outside of your shop your building and uh, cooling it outside uh, you can find many youtube videos online uh, you can uh, find many uh, written tutorials online and i see think that would be your best option uh in a wood shop it is slightly complicated and can be quite expensive uh <laughs> hmm. but if you know what you're doing uh, then it should be fine thank you very much
2: all right get on it shannon so he's recommending a water feature in my shop you need order. a water feature and you need to actually place it outside i think if i have a water
1: feature i have to like go all wilbur and buy all <laughs> japanese tools and have like right you know, wooden flute music playing in the background. (laughs) It's a bamboo growing in the corner.
2: It sounds like if if you have a a shop that requires like, I don't know, maybe you're doing computer generated things and you have those in that dusty environment, that sounds like a reasonable way to go if you're looking for a long-term solution. That seems a little bit, just a little bit excessive if what you're doing is you know, checking your email <laughs> or, or streaming your videos to the shop. You know what I mean? Like that's probably right. a little more than you're willing to do.
1: Right. I'm thinking, I'm <clears throat> thinking just going solid state, not having moving parts is probably going to be enough. A, yeah. a Good start. You know, I, I, there's been a lot of advice, um, a, a lot of very informed advice, oh, yeah. not just people shooting from the hip too. So, uh, I appreciate that. I was, uh, I got the the responses that I need and lots to think on. So I Well
2: what's uh what's the dude's too. name so we can thank him? The guy that sent the Facebook thread. He's an IT guy and put posted oh, yeah. this to his IT friends and there's like uh this the screen grab of tons of replies. <laughs> different responses. And what was interesting is, you know, when you
1: post a question and you bring up you just say the word Mac to a bunch of IT professionals and usually that's enough to start like a turf war. Um, This was actually a lot of really uh, nice thought out responses. Civilized. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to find that in my email, but uh, you know who you are.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Very nice of you to send that. All we'll right, find later. Moving to the next one. Uh, so this, uh, this one. Oh, this is you. Never mind. Yeah, it's me. That's <laughs> why I was going. Uh, it was. It's uh, from Alex. He says, "I remember seeing this project where the guy incorporated mahogany, similar to sapelli, with cherry and wengy." Now, remember, I think this was our uh, weekend show last week where we talked about combining a, a particular species with sapelli. Uh, he says they, that the guy used sapelli. Uh, oh, well, he says mahogany, which is similar to sapelli with cherry and wengi. I love the mix ever since the, uh, I've seen it. It's a lumberjocks post. Uh, he says I'd love to hear your thoughts on this mix of species. And as always, it was a great episode. Keep up the wood talking. Uh, so I have to remind myself of which one this is. Hold on. Boop boop booty, doo doo bing. All right, so it's a chest with okay with uh, mahogany wengi and cherry. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's what he said. It's nice. (coughs) Excuse me. Three woods in one species. You really got to be careful. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a difficult thing to pull off. Uh, frankly, I like it. Um, it is definitely something that I could see. Not everyone will like, but if you're going to do this, I think that's a fairly handsome design personally.
1: Yeah. There's some nice compliments there. Mm -hmm. Um, definitely the cherries in the same color palette, which makes it nice and then you've got that contrast but I think anytime you contrast with a by going darker ends up being better yeah. than contrasting lighter sure I could totally be wrong there, but personally, I think that sounds, looks better.
2: Well, and the thing that you might need to be careful of with, with a situation like this is you can't always judge where that cherry is today and say that that's where it's going to be in a couple of years because you'll be living with something that's actually much more intensely darkly colored as the cherry ages. So you may find, uh, I did this with cherry and walnut one time, uh, where the walnut and the cherry started to become a lot more alike. As time went on, so the contrast was there before, and now it's not so contrasted because everything darkened up on the cherry, and actually the walnut over time might actually wind up getting a little bit lighter. So the gap closes a little bit, so you have to decide, is that is that what you want? Does it work for the piece, or does that create problems for you? Um, right. Keep that in mind, but that, in particular, that's a very handsome piece of furniture. I like that. It was very nice. I like job, it, Alex. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, Ben wrote it on the same topic and he said on the
1: contrast as Peely, I would say if you want to go lighter, go cherry. So there's two votes for cherry. Mm-hmm. If you want to go darker, go walnut, um, which is actually what Alex said. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. No. No, Alex um, said, uh, oh, he said wingy, but he, Ben also goes on to say wingy looks nice too. The one thing that I will say about wingy in general, and this is kind of what Mark was just saying, um, you have to be careful, not that it's going to change color due to a uh, chemical reaction or anything like that, but Wingy gets really dark when you put finish on it. Mm-hmm. You know, all that nice chocolatey brown and the striation and everything, it gets almost the same color. Uh, it gets very, very, very dark. And especially if we're using like that cool sawn look with the great stripes, the stripes almost disappear because Wingy is a very porous wood. So it soaks up a lot of stuff and it gets almost ebony like when yeah. you put. Um, especially a penetrating finish on it. So you have to be really careful there. I know a lot of people who bought Wenge for that chocolate brown and they wonder where it went. Right. Well, because of, of so my,
2: my many experiences with Wenge, I specifically, when building for that client that likes it, uh, he's grown to really like the fact that it actually does become that muted blackish sort of ebony color right. and we counted on that happening. There was no disappointment because we knew it was going to happen. But then you now with I mean wengi isn't cheap either, but it's certainly not the cost of any type of ebony, um, but you can get a nice panel of, uh, of, of Wenge and put the finish on it and suddenly it just to the average person looking at it. It's a sea of just dark black you know yeah. and it can look very very cool if used properly but you're right any subtlety in it tends to be lost especially if you go into the world of like an oil based finish on top of there it just oh, yeah. it just muds it out immediately and turns it black well and i always think the
1: important thing here is to also think about the lighting situation yep. most of our rooms are not they're not lit like our wood shop, but that way. Right. So if you've already got a piece that looks dark with finish and then you put it in a bedroom, it's going to be black.
2: Yeah, Wangy yeah. is going to look pitch black, <laughs> at least in my bedroom it would. Right. All right, right. so uh, what's the third one we got here? Uh, this is from Java Jake. He says, Shannon, about four years ago, I made these cabinets for shop computers at work. Another Lumberjacks post. Uh, they could have used a thicker gasket at the front, but worked out pretty well. Maybe overkill for home though. So it looks like he built a workstation here that essentially puts the computer and components in a cabinet. Also is uh, allowing you to hang your monitor right in front. So it's kind of one of those mobile workstation type things. Uh, but this way, it's in a protected environment. Uh, looks like it's filtered to some extent, but you know, protected from the dust. So another another option for you. Another good option. I'm just going to jump in here real quick with a message from our sponsor, FanDuel. Nothing makes football season more exciting than fantasy sports, and no one does it better than FanDuel. FanDuel is the trusted leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. They're paying out over $75 million a week this season. Building a team is easy. Just pick your players, stay under the salary cap, and sit back on Sunday and watch your team rack up the points. Entry fees start at just a dollar and anyone can play. During week two, Mike F. from Pittsburgh turned $7 into almost $9,000 during his first week on FanDuel. Join him and over one million others who have already won real money. Go to FanDuel.com and click the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use our code BRILLIANT and sign up today. And here's a special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it up to $200 that gets earned as you play. Offer good for the first 50 people that use the code BRILLIANT. So don't delay and don't forget to use that code BRILLIANT. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com to sign up today. Emails. Let's look at some emails. Let's do it. Uh, Email from Justin here. He says, I'm planning on building a mission-style filing cabinet. The drawer fronts will be white oak panels with a raised, speaking of wangy, it's a wangy day today. Uh, Wengi grid work. See the attachment for an example. I don't actually see the attachment. Uh, that's because <laughs> ma- that's because Matt puts these into the file. To say,
1: well, just just a note <laughs> for people. <laughs> Oftentimes these yeah. all get dumped into like a in a spreadsheet looking thing. And yeah, all we have is attachments words. Don't go with them.
2: All right, I'm and concerned that's not here.
1: want one of a secretary to pull them up.
2: Exactly, I'm concerned that I won't be able to wipe on or brush on the color and top coat on all these nooks and crannies without it pulling or showing brush and rag marks. The obvious answer is to spray, but I don't have the equipment for that. Is there any product or technique that I can use to ensure consistent application of color and protection when working on intricate designs like this? For what it's worth, my typical go-to oil-based stain uh, with a top coat is Armor Seal. Alright, so this is uh, just something that I've had to handle in the past and there's two different things. We'll talk about like a stain and dye and then the top coat. Bottom line is if you can't get into the nooks and crannies by spray, what I like to do is uh, sort of inundate the surface with it. Soak it so that everything gets covered because I'd rather have a little bit of extra finish in a nook and cranny than not have enough. Right. So, Mm -hmm. if you're trying to like painstakingly apply it with a small applicator of some type, that's a real pain in the butt and difficult to do. Uh, And the finish is going to dry, you know, as you're working on it. So, it's not good. Um, So, I would rather flood and then try to wipe off the excess. And any little bit that gets stuck deep in there, you may get a little bit of extra sheen there because the finish is going to build up a little bit more, but it's kind of not the end of the world, you know. So, if there's a lot of little details uh, with your stain, if you wanted to, you can actually put your stain into a spray bottle. Uh, Of course, you're going to want to protect your floor when you do this. (laughs) Uh, So put it in a spray bottle and you can spray it all over the surface. I do this with my HVLP sometimes. If I'm doing a a big project and I want to get a lot of coverage quickly, I will soak it and let it, you know, I'll get the whole project done and then I'll come back and if you have a helper, it's always good because the stuff can dry a little bit quickly. Um, Get some, uh, get two hands going, a rag in each hand and start wiping. And you're basically flooding and then wiping back. You'll get good, even coverage all over the place. Get the big stuff first and then go back to those little detailed areas and wipe as needed. And hopefully that will uh, give you good, even coverage of your, your color, whatever it may be. Uh, and then from there, you can kind of do a similar thing with your finishes. Now, Armor Seal is a good example because it's a diluted wiping varnish. It's already in a diluted state. If you wanted to, you could dilute it a little bit more, but I don't think you necessarily need to. But get yourself a sponge applicator or a brush. You know, it could be a nice brush or a crappy brush. doesn't matter because you're not. the brush stroke isn't the last thing on the surface. You just need something that will efficiently get the finish onto the workpiece and again, flood it. All right, so let it go seep all over the place, let it go everywhere it wants to go, and then come back and wipe off the excess. And it'll take a couple of coats to to build up to what you're looking for. And again, you still may wind up with a little extra sheen in those deep, deep pits that you can't quite reach, Uh, but that's the trade-off for the simplicity of this method to soak and wipe away. Um, So that's how I handle it. In in lieu of having spray equipment, that's, uh, in my opinion, one of the easiest ways to get a decent result. Well, the
1: other thing is, especially since he's using oil-based, those areas where it pools are going to dry really slowly. Yeah. So you've got a lot of time, even if you grab like an old toothbrush yeah. to come back and and wipe that stuff back, you should be okay. Sure.
2: Q-tips other, too. You know.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. The other thing to consider: an Erlex 5500 is right now 292 on Amazon.
2: There you go. It's not. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't really never been cheaper to get in the HVLP game. Right. I'm just, you know, I know that it's, 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 it's still
1: $300. And as, as Wilbur would say, that's a lot of money. Um, you, you, still i mean that's a major investment and for somebody that in the grand scheme of things has recently gotten into spraying oh my god it's awesome
2: it's a game changer for sure (laughs) you know
1: this may be one project but again all those intricate details think about the time you put into making them in the first place and if you're all worried that your finish technique might screw it up it might be worth that it's certainly going to be something you'll use again in the future no doubt and, you know, the, yes, there are many, many more expensive HVLPs. I have the 5,500. I love it. Um, I, you know, I can't, I haven't used a more expensive one, so I don't really know what I'm missing, but I do know that it performs so well that I don't feel like I'm missing
2: anything. So. Right. Yeah. Hey, you know what I just got? What? It's a secret. You know what just came in? A Fuji five-stage turbine. <laughs> nice. I think I could probably, like, blow a hole in the side of my house with it. It's that powerful. <laughs> I'm going to try to do that, actually. Um, yeah, That's what the
1: fifth stage is for, right? That's yeah. the turbo boost. That's phase. what it
2: is, uh, just in case you need a quick exit from your home. Um, <laughs> the uh, What I have now, what I've been using, I started with a three-stage, upgraded to a four-stage, uh, and that thing is super powerful, and I didn't even realize companies made these five-stage pro units, so it's probably more than anybody in your average shop is going to need, but I can't wait to use it. It just, um, the Fuji makes some great HVLP equipment. I can't wait to get my hands on it, but it's sitting in a box. I'm waiting for me to have my way with it. And that's where, if
1: you're worried about blowback, you turn on the fist stage and spray from across the room.
2: Yeah, that's right. You don't even need a respirator when you use this because it shoots it 20 feet right. away from you. So you're fine. New that's technology. Nice. It's great.
1: Right on. <coughs> it's awesome. All right. Um, well, this next email comes from John. He says, mm-hmm. when would you recommend to use cut nails on a project? And when would you advise against it? Never. Oops, Simple sorry. answer. I would never advise against using cut nails.
2: Oh, no. Nice. Uh,
1: I would advise against using ring shank nails. Um and, and Why that, is that is what channel? has given nails a bad, bad rap, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh Christopher Schwartz just wrote, not just, but probably sometime in the last season, <laughs> wrote an article on uh kind of review of nails and he puts uh, blacksmith-made wrought nails kind of at the top of the pyramid and then advises that, you know, you might need to sell a kidney in order to buy some for your project. Right. Then there are cut nails and then there are ring shank nails. And he even says when it comes to the ring nails, just don't use them. Um, use a screw. Um, <laughs> the cut nails – you know, they they come in a bunch of different shapes and sizes. Some of them are meant to be seen. Some of them are meant to be hidden. So you have to ask yourself, do I want nails to be seen? Do I want to highlight the nails? In either answer, there is a cut nail for you that is going to hold better than a typical ring nail. Um, in some instances, it's not going to hold better than a screw. Let's mm-hmm. be honest. A screw has a mechanical tooth to it. But um, they're really, really versatile. Um, the, I guess the one time I would advise against using a cut nail is when you want to take the pieces apart easily later on because they do not come apart right. uh, with cut nails. They're just, they're, they are the, the big boy pant version <laughs> of nails. Um, so, you know, if, if it's a project where you don't want nails to be seen, then maybe don't use nails at all. That has nothing to do with cut nails or not. Just don't use nails. But I think if you're ever going to use nails on a project.
2: Cut nails are the way to go. It just how makes hard are sense they, to me. How hard are they to acquire? I mean, can you get that at Home Depot? Can I go get some cut nails? No. Not that I know of anyway. I'm out.
1: But Tools for <laughs> Working Wood carries them. Uh, Tremont Nail Company carries them. Tools for Working Wood, at least for me, granted, they're in Brooklyn and I'm, you know, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I order from Tools for Working Wood and they're almost faster than Amazon Prime at this point.
0: Wow, <laughs> Shows up nice. the next day,
1: you know. Jeez. So uh, there's really no reason... Um, uh, I, I I don't know. I I don't think it's that difficult for me. I end up buying just about everything online um, because I, every time I don't have a woodcraft or a rockler or anything like that, I do have a Home Depot nearby. But that place frightens me, so I just don't go there very often. <laughs> yeah. And it has nothing to do with the store. It's just the volume of people that flow in and out of that store on a weekend and terrible parking. So I just avoid it at all and costs.
2: And the and the Christmas trees in August. <laughs> yes, there is that.
1: But There's no, that I I really don't advise against cut nails. I You know, if you're going to use
2: nails on a project, to me, it's an obvious choice. Cool. Sounds good. You know, I have not really used them, uh, cut nails at all. Yeah. They're fun. They're fancy. uh, Brad nails is about as naily as I get, but uh, they they, they do look fun. Yeah. Don't put the cut nails
1: in your Brad nailer. It's not a good idea.
2: (laughs) This thing doesn't work. It's jammed. Maybe maybe you have a five stage compressor. Ah, there you go. I could put it in my interfaces. Yeah, my uh, Bostitch nailer can't handle it, but my Fuji sprayer can. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, we got a little um, double question here uh, that both of us are going to sort of chime in on. Since Matt's not here to answer his fair share of questions, he's gallivanting in the uh, Baltimore airport. Yeah,
1: he's getting a body cavity search at Baltimore security. (laughs) Yeah, that's
2: what it is. Uh, Let's see. It's from Matt coincidentally says I've made several table esque pieces lately and have a hard time flattening the carcass tops to accept the tabletop with no gaps. What are your secrets? Now I asked Shannon for clarification on this to, to figure out exactly what he means. And what Shannon me thinks he means is that when you have the legs and aprons of a table together and you put the top on, uh, Matt is having trouble where he's seeing gaps somewhere in the assembly there. Right? So that's what we're going to address any tips or things that we have, uh, to help get those things make them gap free. Right. Uh, so, uh, I'll let you take it first since you threw this one in
1: there. Well, the easy answer is, uh, screw it down anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and and if it pulls the table, so to the point that it rocks, then you start over and figure something else out. But, you know, when you're talking about tabletop size pieces, that's the chances that that wood is going to move on you. Um, and possibly now not be flat to the, the, um, the base is very high. Pretty good. So yeah. sometimes it's just a matter of screwing it in place and it, pulls that out. Now, if it's severe enough, or if the base itself is that out of alignment, then that's not going to help you. But that would be step one. Screw it down anyway and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Then go on from there. Okay. Um, I think this is one of those perfect hand tool solutions, whether you are a power tool, dyed in the wool power tool, hybrid, whatever. This is just one of those things where it's refining of something. And for me, I grab a joiner plane, and I joint You know, from table leg to table leg, Uh, I focus on each side individually, and then I work on bringing all of them into the same plane together. And it's a simple matter of you can bring uh, a straight edge. In fact, I just did this. Um, If you look at my uh, last trestle table project, um, I had to make sure that the two mating surfaces were not in wind. So because I have a almost, what, two and a half inch thick top, screwing that down won't make a bit of difference. There's not enough flex <laughs> in that top. So I just treated it like a board and I put winding sticks on it to make sure that it was uh, not in line. And I had to use, a, um, in my case, I used a smoothing plane just to make sure that they were perfectly aligned. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, some meticulous um, using a straight edge and making sure that things line up and just taking off a thousand, two thousandths of an inch at a time until you get it just right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for me, this usually comes down to prevention. And I, it's one of those things where I didn't really pay that much attention to it early on because I didn't realize how much it would cause me problems downstream. But build enough of you know, various tables and you suddenly realize just how annoying it is if your apron is proud by a sixteenth of an inch. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you're assembling it, you go, ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a sixteenth of an inch. But then think about what happens with the table when it sits on top of that. Uh, so then you do have to break out the planes and start to to clean that up a little bit. Uh, so for me, I've modified some of the ways that I make my joints to allow for that adjustment. Because when you're doing your dry assemblies, and you know, especially if you just go into the glue up phase, you hammer those joints together, and then suddenly everything is, you know, it's too late to take things apart, and you notice that your joints aren't lining up perfectly with the top of your legs, or I'm sorry, your aprons aren't aligned perfectly with the top of the legs. Uh, either just slightly recessed below, or a little bit proud. So what I've gotten into the habit of doing is if I have any reason to suspect there's a little bit of variability, I will take a chisel and just take a 16th, no more than an eighth of an inch, off the top of all of my apron tenons. Mm -hmm. And what that does is gives me that flexibility to move it up and down just a little bit so when the glue is on, when the clamps are in place, before I've really cinched them down, I walk around to each one of those leg joints and I grab a hammer and I tap it into place, up or down as needed, just to make sure it's perfectly flush. So if you do that you're starting off on the right foot and chances are if there are any gaps it is because your top is is starting to cup or warp just a little bit and you could deal with that you know directly by how you attach it to the uh the base but you don't have to suspect that the base is the problem right you know yeah, so yeah that's, for-
1: that's a good point it's kind of like you know pre-finishing if you will it's, yes. it's it's pre-jointing those edges before you put it together um, exactly. I like the idea of adding the wiggle room in
2: Yeah. And that's just something anytime I've had an apron that meets a table leg, it's got to be flush. If it's not flush, I'm basically promising myself more work later. And if it's, (laughs) if it's, if it's recessed, that's even worse because now you've got a gap, you know, so then you either have to fill it or you have to take everything else down to somehow, you know, meet that gap and make sense with that gap. So either have your
1: ingrain on the legs. Right. That's total nightmare.
2: And your legs are already cut to a a very specific length. So as soon as you start screwing with that, it's, it's just a headache. So seriously, you get it right ahead of time, give yourself that tendon wiggle room and uh, you should be able to get a pretty good, reasonably flat carcass, as he says.
1: Yeah. Remember the strength in a tendon folks is from the cheek contact. Not, you know, if it's a little bit, if the width of the tendon is a little bit narrower than the mortise, it's not, you're not sacrificing any strength there. Right. I mean, I suppose you are, but it's but, such a minute think, amount of strength you're sacrificing. Yeah,
2: I would say technically there's probably a loss, but yeah. in, in practical purposes and for our purposes, probably not that big of a deal. Right. I do it all the time. All right. Well, that's going to really do it for our show here today. If you want to support us, you can. Yeah, You can set up a recurring donation over at woodtalkshow.com, or you could go get a Wood Talk t-shirt at the com. That's twwstore.com. Uh, You could look us up in iTunes, give us a little, this cost you nothing but a few minutes. Go to iTunes, click on ratings and reviews once you find our show and give us a five-star rating just like this person did. Uh, The name is interesting. It's lots of O's. No too doopy. (laughs) is what it says not bad at all great podcast I ran across this podcast while being bored and I'm glad I did Matt, Shannon and Mark make a great combo especially coming from different styles such as hand tools and power machinery so it gives you multiple points of view and different ideas keep it up fellas I've listened to roughly 65 episodes in a week god that's a lot of Matt in your head (laughs) jeez how did you do it sir I I can't take an hour a week of Matt actually that's not (laughs) true I would listen to Matt as I go to sleep if I could um, all right. Well, I think I will give Shannon the honor <laughs> I was of just the contact. Say, now that Matt's on the road, that might happen. <laughs> it could very well happen if
1: yes. one night you wake up and, and Matt is reading the uh, closing like, part of Wood Talk in your yeah, ear while you
2: sleep. That's Matt, why. why are you in my bedroom? This is a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Yeah, give him the contact info and then we will get out of here. So, folks, if you have comments, questions,
1: or topic suggestions, you know, there are several ways to contact us. Leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Finally, you can email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or just leave a comment on the Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you'll find them at woodtalkshow.com. You can also leave comments there too, by the way. Awesome. And those comments
2: uh, actually do make it into the show a lot of the time.
1: They do. Whether you want them to or not lively conversations going on in there all the time good good stuff so has anybody else thought about the fact that now that matt is traveling for his job
2: that his name is now traveling matt that's the perfect name frankly. from fraggle
1: rock i mean come on
2: i can't uh imagine any other name he needs to start a blog called yeah. traveling matt traveling matt all right well he had the daily matt for a while right he should start a segment of uh his matt's basement workshop called the traveling matt yeah that'd be good all right well thanks for listening everybody and we'll catch you next time see ya